Welcome back to Ag Arts from Horse and Buggy Land. I'm your host, Mary Swander, and we're back at the Mount Vernon, Iowa Farmers Market with stories from farmers, old and young this time, and the Mississippi String Band. The Mississippi String Band will be playing Don't Worry About Me. And our first farmer storyteller tonight is the very talented David Miller. Farming. Farmers. It's way past all of our bedtime. Good night. (laughs) So... There I was. This is a completely true story. I'm not making any of this up. I'm sitting on the couch in my whitey tidies, tidy whiteies, white socks, drinking directly out of the wine bottle. And my wife walks in through the door and she says, Rough day? The day started out beautiful. It was one of those rare spring days that you all know where the temperature is getting close to 60. And one of those springs, which is every spring where February lasts for four months, and I was dying to get outside. And on my farm, the wind always blows 50 miles an hour or more. But that day, the winds were light and variable. So I wanted to get outside and do something. I didn't know what to do because the ground was too wet to till. It was too cold to plant. What could you do? Set things on fire. That's right. But before I went out and set things on fire, I had to count my ducks. I had just adopted a group of ducks. I went out to adopt two and I ended up coming home with way more, because I just, I just put them all in the back of my van. That one right over there. I put them all in the back of my van loose because I didn't have enough cages for them. I brought them all back home. I got them home. And when I looked at them all, I know that I had paid for nine ducks. But it appeared to me that there were eight ducks. And now if you have ever counted ducks, you know that it's next to impossible. Because as soon as you try to count them, they start... They start moving around and you can't count them. And they're, they're, because ornithologists will tell you that they want to get on the inside of the group because on the outside, that's the duck that gets eaten by the predator. And I'm here to tell you after 20 years of raising ducks, the reason that they're running around and juking and running and dodging is because they're jerks. <laughs> You go up to a duck that's sleeping in the grass and it'll say, hey, here comes that hairless ape. Watch my new moves. And they'll all just start juking around. So I'm counting the ducks. And for seven to 10 days, roughly, I keep coming up with roughly eight ducks. 
I know I paid for nine, but there were only eight ducks. And that day, beautiful day, eight ducks, not going to worry about it. I go off to rip corn stalks out of the ground because they were still there and I hadn't done anything about them in the fall. And we'll say I did that for nature reasons and not because I was lazy. And I'm pulling corn stalks out and I'm making a fire that's roughly three by three, not higher than your knee, in the middle of dirt. You know, what could go wrong? And I'm pulling this corn stalk out, that corn stalk out, and I look over and a half acre of standing dry cover crop is on fire. I don't know how it happened. All I can tell you is that the winds were light and variable. Did I have a hose ready like I should have? No, I did not. Did I have a little sprayer, pump sprayer? It wouldn't have done me any good, but no, I did not. Did I have the two employees that were trained in prairie burning, one by the federal government, there to help? No, I did not. I decided that I was going to run to the other side of this patch of cover crop and set it on fire on the other side. I was going to fight fire with fire. And I set a backfire so that all the fuel would burn, and when the fire the main fire got there, which was creating its own not very light and very, very variable wind. It would get there, there would be no fuel, it would burn out, everything would be okay. I'd save the day from myself. And it worked until it didn't. Because the wind was light and variable. And it split the fire, and the fire started going east toward the South Fork of Walnut Creek. And it went south, and I thought, well, it's going toward water. That's good. If it jumps the creek, that's a thousand acres. The fire then split again. It started going north along the creek edge, started burning back south, slowly. That south fire split again because the wind was light and variable. And that south fire split and started heading toward the brand new house that my wife and I had built. Now, we didn't actually build it, we had built, you know, real people build it. We're, we're not real people. And I decided that was the fire that I'd take care of first. And I got that fire out. But there were still the two fires along the creek edge one slowly burning south, the other one more quickly burning north. And I'm wearing the really, really, really expensive work boots that my wife let me get, and I jump in the creek, and I have a white bucket that I had abandoned somewhere, and I grabbed it, and it, it's, it's a locally sourced bucket. It's, it was used to ship dill pickles to the cafe up the street, and when they were done with it, I used it for farm things. And I'm in the creek, and I'm furiously throwing water along the bank, hoping that when the fire gets there, it will go out. And now, a, pound, a, a gallon of water weighs eight pounds. So if you imagine throwing 
one and a half, three pounds, three gallons of water over and over again furiously. You can imagine what an aerobic activity that was. And if you've ever been near a grass fire, even six inches tall, if the line is, say, 10, 15 feet wide, it is unbelievably hot. You cannot get close to it. You will cook your skin, which I did, and you will burn off your eyebrows. I did burn off one. And you will send your hair, which I did. And I'm in the creek, and I'm throwing the water, and I'm hoping to God that I can get this fire out. And I'm thinking maybe I should have called the fire department and my phone is clear back in the house, 1,200 feet away. And I don't have it because it doesn't work very well and it's really heavy and it pulls my pants down. And, and I'm thinking, do I go back or do I keep fighting the fire? And I decide, okay, if the fire gets to the crossing, there's a creek crossing, if it gets to the crossing and I haven't got it out, I'm going to run to the house. I'm going to call the fire department. I lost. I ran to the house as, as well as I could. I was already so tired, and my shoes were melted. And I ran to the house, and I called 911, and they said, 911, what's your emergency? And I said, I have a fire, but I'm in Jones County. It was Lynn County 911. I'm in Jones County. They said, we'll transfer you to Jones County. They transferred me to Jones County. I said, I have a fire. I live in Jones County, right, right on the corner of Jones, Lynn, and Cedar. And they said, you're in Lisbon's fire district. We'll transfer you to, to, to Lynn County. And they transferred me to Lynn County, and I said, I have a fire. And they said, we'll send somebody out. Then they called back and said, they're out on another fire. We're going to send Martell and Mount Vernon, and whoever gets there first is going to help you. Great. I could barely speak because I was so dry. And then I went out and I headed back toward the fire. I don't know what I thought I was gonna do. And I got down by the creek and by that time Martell Fire had showed up. This is an all volunteer fire department. I thank them from the, the, the bottom of my heart. The reason I didn't call them in the first place Hubris, I didn't want to be the guy who let this fire get out of control, right? So they show up, and there's a saying in agriculture that if anything embarrassing is going to happen, it's going to happen next to the road, and everybody's going to see it. And this wasn't right next to the road, but you could see it from the road, and there were flashing lights and sirens. And Martell fire came across the field, and they came, and by the time they got there, the fire was about that big. It was about the size of a trash can. And if I'd had any moisture left in my body, I could have peed on it and put it out. But I was dry. And they showed up, and they put the fire out. And then, that's when Mount Vernon and Lisbon showed up. So we have all three fire departments on the road, lights and sirens. And it's embarrassing, but I tell you what, I wrote about this in an essay before, and I know it got forwarded to all of them if they didn't get it directly. And every time they go by the house, they honk and wave. And if I'm out there, I wave back. It's embarrassing, but I really, really appreciated their help. So the, Martel puts the fire out. 
and I'm standing there, and I realize in this moment, with a weird thing to realize, I'm older than the fire chief. And the fire chief says to me, do you need oxygen? And I said, no. And he said, are you sure? I probably looked a lot worse, you know, than I realized. I said, no, I'm, I'm fine. He said, you know, and I apologized for putting out the fire. And he said, you know, no big deal. You got to do what you got to do, you know. And it, the reason that the other fire departments couldn't be here on time is because other people had the exact same thought. They went out and they set fires in the grass and the ditches and it got out of control. True story. So they tell me, you know, on your way back to the house, sort of just walk along the creek bank. And if you see any little swirls of smoke, take the shovel that you have and swat it, put it out. And I walk about a thousand feet along the creek bank and I'm so tired. And I am yeah, just miserable. And I'm tapping out these little smoke things. And I get down almost to the end and the vegetation is all gone. And I look down in the water and there's the ninth damn duck. <laughs> I'm not making this up. The ninth damn duck, which let me just tell you, is still alive to this day. And we call her the Niner. So she's down in the water, and I'm thinking, this duck was practically feral when I got it. I'm not going to be able to just bend over and pick it up like I can with my other birds who know me well, you know. Uh, so I decide I got to go back and get a fishing dip net to catch this duck. And then the only fishing dip net I got locally sourced at Ace Hardware. And... Unfortunately, the day that I went to buy one, I really needed one, but the only one available was a Mattel Barbie fishing dip net. So it's bright fuchsia with uh, glitter pony sparkles, you know. And it's not really long enough, but it's all I got. So I had to, I had to buy it in an emergency to catch a runaway heritage turkey named Brian the Pig. Whole other story. So I get the dip net, I think I'm running back, maybe I wasn't, I don't know. I get back down to the creek, and this duck now is full of adrenaline, and sees the dip net, she says, I'm not having that. And you probably don't realize this, but domestic ducks can fly a little bit. And this duck was able to fly up over my head and across the fence, that keeps Blackjack the bull from eating my kale. I climbed the fence with my glitter pony Barbie Mattel fishnet. Of course, I get my crotch snagged in barbed wire and then I fall down and flop around on the ground for a little while and get up. And fortunately, Blackjack was out of the office that day. He was, he was working from home. And I go in pursuit of the duck and I'm running in the water with my melted shoes, which are heavy, and I'm already tired. And the duck takes me in about a quarter mile chase up South Fork, the, the South Fork of Walnut Creek. And I finally catch her. And I'm so glad. 
and the hole has, the dip net has a hole in it. And I, I grab her, grab her close to my chest. I get back over the fence with a duck and I return her to all her other duck friends. And there is no gratitude, just fear and loathing. And they're, you know, you know, they're just being jerks, you know. And I swear to God, if you go, if you open up a duck house in the middle of the night, they'll be asleep and they'll, they'll jump up and they'll start weaving and bobbing and, and doing their scrum thing. And if you do, you open up a chicken coop at night, hey, what's going on? I'm just, just doing a head count. It's just me, Dave. Dave's not here, man. <laughs> so, so I get the duck back. They're just, they, they, they just hate me. They're, they're, you know, go away until you have more free food. And, and so that's, that's what I did. I went back in the house. I got in the mudroom. Stripped off all my clothes except for my socks and underwear, which were once white but are now that dingy charcoal colored that creek water gives everything. My hair's a little bit singed off. I think it was this eyebrow that was missing. This one was short and it looked like it had been trimmed back for the summer or something. And I'm sitting on the couch, completely soaking wet, knowing that this is not the thing to be doing on nice furniture in a new house. And I'm drinking from a bottle of Brianna, Glenmar wine, locally sourced, of course. <laughs> and I'm chugging it. I mean, I, it's never tasted, no wine has ever tasted better. It was helping with the, the burning in the chest. It was, it, was, it was great. It was the most wonderful thing, but it was also the most terrible day. And that's when my wife walks in and says, rough day? And I said, the winds were light and variable. David finished his story, I asked audience members if they had any stories that they would like to tell about farming and to please come up to the mic. Immediately, two young girls came up, Eva and Alyssa, and they picked up on some themes that our other farmers had established. So first you're going to hear about carrots from Eva, and Alyssa picks up on the duck theme. She raises ducks, and I even bought some eggs from her at the farmer's market. So, Eva and Alyssa. One day, I was planting uh, some carrot seeds. I think they were supposed to be big. And then, uh, a long time later, they're like maybe um, this big or something. 
And I... The seeds or the carrot? The carrot. Oh, carrot, dog. And the carrots, I thought were maybe going to be like this long. But they weren't. They were like halfway. <laughs> and they, yeah, I thought it were carrots. And one day when I was waiting, I accidentally pulled a carrot out because I thought it was really a weed. <laughs> and that's all. Here we go! That's great! Yay! Thank you! When my dad was bringing the ducks home, it was the first time when it was the first time when they were in the car. And, and then when they got a little older, I started brought, brought them come to the farmers market. And then and then later on, they they were scared of cars. And they almost and some of them were kind of goofy and fast. That's all. Oh, that's great. That's great. Thank you, Alyssa. I'm not worried about nothing. Nothing bothering me. So don't worry about me. I'm going to be all right. And that concludes our podcast episode and our recording from the Mount Vernon Farmer's Market with farmers telling their own stories in a performance of Fork Tales. We thank those that have supported us, especially the Mount Vernon Arts Council and all the work that Steve Merovitz put into this production. We also thank the support that we've been given by Rick Brewer, our technical assistant, and the Werner Ellithorpe Fund at the Oregon Community Foundation and the Calio Levine Fund. We welcome any support that you might give us by clicking that red donate button on our website, www.agarts.org, A-G-A-R-T-S dot org. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and we'll see you next time. Get up.